3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Today is the 13th of September, 2022, and it's 7am. My name is Fung, and in the studio with me today, we've got Jasmine, Carnegie, and Genevieve. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, how are we going? <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, I just moved house, so I'm pretty tired this morning. But Congratulations. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I actually, yeah, I have like battle scars from the move. I have the room that I just moved from was upstairs and the oh. apartment oh, that I just no. moved into was upstairs. So oh. I had to carry everything down <laughs> the stairs and up the stairs. But the funnest part was um, the fridge, which I had some help with my my brother helped me with that one. Did you have to manually walk up the stairs? Yeah. They oh don't have an elevator. Gosh, no. <laughs> no. It's like a 1960s block of flats. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm really strong. <laughs> <laughs> Just slung it over my shoulder. Um, nah, but he, we were like pulling it up these stairs and I was going one, two, three, one step, then one, two, three, and then... My brother was always going on two, and so he's, like, pushing the fridge into my body. And I'm like, stop! Like, oh, God, it's so stressful. But I have, like, these bruises on my arms oh my from him just There's nothing shoving a whole fridge into me. It's, like, oh. such a big test, isn't it, of, like, communication and, yes. like, trust, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to moving house, mm-hmm. like, going to Ikea or something. So, yeah. 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 But yeah. glad to know that you made it through. <laughs> Have you got lots of um, boxes scattered around or have you unpacked everything? It looks like a, yeah, Mm. it's a mess. (laughs) Um, But loving uh, looking for secondhand furniture. Mm. It's, yeah, marketplace. (laughs) I find marketplace so stressful. It is really stressful. It's very addictive as well. I'm just like every night like scrolling through. Yeah, Love a good deal though. Um, well, let's discuss what's happening on today's show. Um, we're going to be talking about consent and consent education quite a bit today. So um, t- to start off with, we're going to replay an interview um, that we did with Heather Corinna, who is the founder and director of Scarletine, which is a... Uh, an independent feminist grassroots sexuality and relationships education um, organisation. Um, I actually think this was my first interview. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> at 3CR, so that's pretty exciting. Um, and in that interview, we talk about the need for really robust and holistic consent education. Uh, so that's coming up first. Then at 7.30, Jasmine. Yeah, so... Um 
I'll be having a chat with Larissa Baldwin about her new transition into um, being the CEO of GetUp. Awesome. Super exciting. Yeah, that's going to be such a great discussion. Coming up after that, we're going to continue the conversation about consent. I spoke with Angelique Wan, who's the CEO, co-founder and executive director of Consent Labs just the other day. Um, They're looking to introduce a new classification that will identify scenes that depict lack of consent in TV shows and and films uh, just to make people more aware of what that looks like um, uh, in, yeah, in TV shows and film. Uh, So that's coming up at quarter to eight. And then at eight, I'll be speaking with um, Alicia Savas, who is from Legal Aid Victoria, about um, a relatively new framework um, aimed at empowering and um, reducing the number of children in child protection, um, which is a direct pipeline to criminalization. That will be a really interesting conversation. Okay, well, we'll be back with the news headlines right after this. The United Nations International Day of Peace is being marked with a rally on Sunday the 18th of September, 12pm at the State Library in Melbourne. The theme of the rally is truth, not war. It's inspired by these words of Julian Assange. If wars can be started by lies, peace can be started by truth. This will be a broad-based, inclusive, colourful and peaceful rally with speeches and music for peace. Joining to show your opposition to AUKUS and the acquisition of nuclear submarines. Take real climate action that recognises the massive emissions caused by wars and arms build-up. And to march for truth and press freedom to drop the prosecution of peacemakers like WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange. For more details, go to Melbourne for Assange on Facebook. Melbourne for Assange are free CR supporters. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, Some news headlines this morning. Um... Australia is in a national skills shortage and one of the key announcements from last week's job summit in Canberra was to uh, was the move to boost the migrant intake by 35,000 per year to help ease the skills shortfall. Um, part of this is refugees who come to Australia. Um, refugees are being supported by a program called the Community Refugee Integration and Settlement Pilot, or CRISP, um, who help them find employment based on their skill sets and shortages in the industry. The program has a community sponsorship network uh, framework where locals who actually know the local job market and know local employers um, and have an inside understanding of the economy um, are able to advise refugees on where to find work um, matched to their skill sets. The CRISP program will support 1,500 refugees in the next three years, and the federal government has indicated that it would like to expand it. Um, the chief executive of CRSA, Lisa Button, has said that um, it's about saying whoever you are as a refugee, you have something to offer Australia, and with the support and knowledge of local community members, they can help you find a place where you can make those contributions. 
Um, some news from Afghanistan. Taliban authorities have shut down girls' schools above the sixth grade in eastern Afghanistan's <coughs> um, Paktia province after it briefly opened earlier this month. A full girls' school started operating um, towards the start of this month without Taliban permission, um, and they've been shut down just a few days later, a few years uh, a year after the Taliban took power in Afghanistan, teenage girls are still barred from going to school. And finally, before we wrap up the news headlines today, we just wanted to let you know that there is an event happening on Thursday, the 15th of September at 5pm. Uh, it's being run by the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Amnesty International Australia, um, and the Victorian Activism and Leadership Committee. They're partnering to uh, dis- run a discussion on the Raise the Age campaign um, leading up to the Victorian election. So it, it's happening on Zoom this Thursday and uh, the guests are Anushka Geronimus, who is the Director of the Youth law program at West Justice. There's also Sam Clintworth, who's the national director of Amnesty International Australia, Maggie Munn, who's a lead campaigner um, for Indigenous rights at Amnesty International, and Nigar Panahi, who's a senior lawyer at VALS. So um, if you're interested in attending this webinar, uh, we can pop the link in the show notes later this morning so you can register register your interest okay so that's been the news headlines for this morning we'll be back with the song right after this px Fano is a pacifica lgbtiq plus podcast providing a platform for pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the covid19 pandemic Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQA plus communities and meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information and to hear our podcast episodes, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash PXFANA, spelt P-X-W-H-A-N-A-U. Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR supporter.
You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to play a song for you now. This song is by um, Mumbai-born, Meandran-based artist Ash Loon, and it's her song called Sugarcoat. But there's still no reply So when you send me the I I'ma hit you with that good night Need did a sign But it's hiding right in plain sight Fell for you hard But you never were the right type Lovers rejoice. The magical Sierra Ferrell returns for a headline tour this October. Bringing a band and her unique style of old-time bluegrass and country music, they will be joined by the one and only Johnny Fritz plus the local Isles in the Drip for a huge night of good times at Thornbury Theatre on October 13th. Sierra Ferrell Band also playing at Menian Town Hall 14th of October and out on the weekend at Seaworks Williamstown 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. You're tuned in to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. The time is 7.15 and we are going to play you an interview that aired on this show 
last year, 13th of April 2021, we spoke with Heather Karina, who's the founder and director of Scarletine. Um, we spoke about the importance of comprehensive and inclusive sex and consent education. Scarletine was founded in 1998 and is an independent feminist grassroots sexuality and relationships education media and uh, support organization and website. The organization provides sex and relationships information and support for young people worldwide. So we're going to throw it over to Heather now, who starts off by talking about um, the importance of consent education. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting to me is that we think about consent education as only something that should be tied to sex education, right? When, of course, you know, ultimately consent education should start as soon as we start anything, right? We should be asking each other and always asking children for consent about everything, you know, from from minute one. And so, you know, I think one of the things that's so tricky about all of this is often the culture of so much education is not particularly consent-friendly in the way that it's set up, right? There's kind of so much that's dictated and so much where where children and groups of children are ordered to do things rather than asked to do things and where everything's set up that people have to do things or else it all falls apart and there's not really a lot of room made in really big group settings, right, where you've got really big groups of children and, you know, one teacher or very few staff people to really kind of do the kind of one-on-one active consenting with with everything, right, with inviting someone to come and sit down, with asking someone if they'd like to answer a question, with inviting someone to go do something else. So, I mean, one of the things that certainly should happen is that no one should be waiting until they're in high school to get information on consent because, of course, you know, we all need to be doing active consenting way before anyone is doing anything sexual. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I think The Conversation actually put out an article recently talking uh, to parents about how they can talk to young children about consent um, in regards to points of like what you were saying in terms of sitting down, but even, you know, giving hugs and, and, and kissing family members. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You know, and then, of course, you know, when we're, when we're giving sex education in schools, you know, historically so much of sex information and education that was in schools really wasn't about you know, interpersonal relationships and interactions, it was about reproduction, right? And just about reproduction and body parts and, you know, mechanics, right? And so some of it, again, is kind of we've done so much of divorcing these things as to kind of untangle them from each other when really we need to be teaching them together, you know? So some of it is is that when we're talking about sex and consent, and we're doing this kind of education, we really need to do them together, and we need to not try and take out, you know, the human interaction parts of all this, but we need to have it baked in to everything we're doing, because, of course, if we don't, we can't expect anybody to just figure it out, especially, again, you know, like we were just talking about, in a world where 
you know, it, we're, it's not underscored by consent, the world that we live in. We don't come into our sexualities with this wonderful foundation of consent and everything else where it would just be obvious to us that, of course, just like with, you know, hugs and touches and haircuts and doors and everything else, of course, consent should be part of it. Consent is so much not a part of the rest of our lives that it's not surprising that for so many people, it's also not a part of their sex and sexuality. Yeah, um, that would be quite revolutionary to start consent education, like you said, from day one and in all contexts, um, so that when you do get to discussing or exploring your sexuality with you know yourself and other people you already have a strong foundation um uh about your own boundaries and and um and seeking consent from from others um you were talking about you know sex education in the past and how it focused on reproduction and i know um on the Scarletine website you mentioned the history of of um uh of sex ed and how it's very much rooted in abstinence um, what are we seeing, or what would you like to see from from sex education? How do we make it more inclusive, um, more relevant, um, and and not just tokenistic? Sure. Well, you know, I mean, I think well, you know one of the things that I think has always made it a lot easier for us is that you know Scarletine started based on the questions that young people were asking us, right? We didn't start Scarletine by saying, we have all of these ideas about what everybody needs, and we're going to start this thing based on our ideas about what everybody needs. I feel like a lot of sex ed kind of starts from adults' ideas about what young people need, whether those ideas are based in what adults thought we needed when we were younger, or those ideas are based in public health initiatives, right? Whether it's like, oh, we have to reduce uh, teen pregnancy, or we have to reduce rates of chlamydia and HIV, right? I mean, like, there's some other agenda, you know, and I think one of the easiest ways to make things inclusive and to make sure that we're not tokenizing and to make sure, again, that the education we're giving is relevant to the people we're providing it to is to make sure that it's really coming from them, right? So in order for something to be inclusive, we have to make sure that who's making that education, you know, that it's nothing about us without us, right? So that who's making that education includes a diverse array of people so that you don't wind up with you know, I feel like one of these things that we're kind of seeing a little bit of as more places try and be inclusive is that you kind of get the same old stuff that you get, but then there's like this add-on. It's like, but it's okay to be gay, right? Like, mm. or it's okay to be trans, or some people are this, which is not really inclusivity, right? Inclusivity is when we can all see ourselves somewhere in the picture, Right. It's not that there's, you know, still this kind of, uh, you know, um, default group and then we're all tiny satellites, right, that come to the side of the group. It's that the default is diversity. Right. And so in order to really make it so that we're inclusive, we really do have to change that default from thinking of the default as white, 
as cisgender, as heterosexual, as able, and think instead of the default as diversity. You know, and if we do that, I think it's a little bit easier to make it inclusive when we make that our starting place. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head with, like, saying, you know, we're we're teaching sex education, but, you know, it's okay to be gay and it's okay to be trans, but not speaking in any sort of depth about, you know, uh, pleasure when it comes to that kind of thing or, like, what that, like, looks like or exploring that in any depth. So, yeah, I feel like it's uh, that tokenistic thing at its, like, most prevalent yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, Scarlett, you know, I've made it as a queer person from the beginning, right? So, you know, I, I've never had a life experience as a straight person. Right? I can't tell you what it's like to be a straight person. And most of most of the material that's been made at Scarlett Teen over the years has been made by queer people. And yet, you know, we've we've never had straight youth say to us that it doesn't really work for them. Right. Like, I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing, which is that in some ways, kind of when you come from a perspective that, again, is queer inclusive, that's disability inclusive, when, when you come from these places that include more marginalized perspectives, places that are, le- you know, people in places that are less marginalized, it, it still works for them. Right. <laughs> like, I think that's the whereas the opposite is not so true. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think a lot of conservatives really pervert that, um, and, and call it an agenda, but it's, it's not an agenda. Yeah. It's, you know, it's reality. It's people's lived experiences. And like you said, Heather, if you make things inclusive from the very beginning, you're casting a wider net and you're able to, um, affect and reach so ma- like everyone pretty much, um, instead exactly. of a really small group of people. Um, I know this may be op- um, obvious to a lot of us here, but um, just for people who uh, are interested or, or not sure, what outcomes can we expect from really comprehensive and holistic sex and consent education? Well, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that gets so overlooked all of the time is that it's a, everybody kind of makes it a question mark as to like why we still kind of can't solve our worldwide cultural problem with sexual violence and seems to always miss that we still have a, a chasm in terms of a lack of worldwide sex education, right? And really good, comprehensive sex education that includes really good information on consent helps to prevent sexual violence, right? If you don't, if you understand from, you know, as early as you can understand that sex is supposed to be a choice for you and you have different expectations. I mean, so many people grow up with the expectation that sex is going to be not a choice for them, right? That it's compulsory in some way, whether it's compulsory that you need to do it, you need to do it to someone, or whether it's compulsory that you need to accept it, if it's just something that someone does to you, that you need to do it whether or not you want to, right? That whatever your pace is, you don't really get to have your pace, right? Like, there's a certain time at which you just have to, even if you're not really feeling that that's right for you, you know. And so there's so many kind of parts of that that really good sex ed can untangle that really kind of break 
so many of the spells of the beliefs that we have that really hold up so many things that make it so easy, right, for so many of these systems of sexual violence and coercion and, and power, right, like really intense, misogynistic, sexually violent power to stay in place are these belief systems. And so I think, you know, that's, that's a big deal. So people, and, and then of course, you know, people having healthier relationships, um, period, when, when we're talking about that, but then just in general, healthier relationships with their own sexuality, people having improved self-esteem and confidence. You know, again, when we're really being inclusive about sex ed, and it includes a wide range of bodies, body abilities, body disabilities, people having, um, better body image and a sense of their bodies, you're going to have people that are going to be engaging in safer sex using more birth control because they'll know how, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but also they'll feel more empowered to do it because you have more people that are supporting you and actually doing it rather than kind of scaring you out of it. Um, I mean, obviously, like, I could do this all day. I know I sound like a Tupperware lady, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> something, but you know, I mean, I've I've done this now for almost 25 years, and I uh, working in sex ed is not exactly the most lucrative work that there is. But you know, one of the reasons that sorry, my dog apparently has something to say about this um, <laughs> that so many of us stay in it is that you know is really this is that you know we see even when we work with people kind of immediate outcomes but we also kind of you know our eyes are on the long-term prize in terms of knowing what's been missing in the world and where this can bring us that was heather karina founder and director of scarletine um speaking to us last year about the importance of really robust and inclusive sex and consent education. If you'd like to know more about Scarletine, uh, you can visit their website, www.scarletine, which is S-C-A-R-L-E-T-E-E-N.com. We are now going to play another song for you. Um, this is by Jem Kassar Daly, and it's her song, Oh No. Just a warning, though, there is some strong language um, in this song, so if you'd like to, if you prefer to tune out, um, you can join us again in two minutes. Oh no. Just disagree You've been holding back My heart's on my sleeve It's clear Everyone can see There's trouble here with you There's trouble here with me God only knows what's up Turns out love's not enough Maybe we give it up Maybe we don't You've been pulling me up
is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Koko for their support of the program. Living Koko puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Koko ethically source cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingkoko.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Before the break, we had the song Oh No by Jem Casadeli. We are now going to play an interview that I had with Angelique Wan, who is the CEO, co-founder and executive director of Consent Labs. Uh, we spoke about the need for a new classification to inform viewers of scenes depicting a lack of consent in TV shows and films. So here's Angelique. Good morning, Angelique. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's lovely to speak with you today. Thank you so much for having me on. So just to start us off, could you tell us more about Consent Labs and the work that you do there? Of course. So Consent Labs, we are a not-for-profit organisation and a leading provider of consent and respectful uh, relationships education around Australia. So we do a lot of our work with young people in high schools and in tertiary education um, 
really empowering young people with an understanding of their rights, an understanding of what a healthy relationship is and and making consent not as taboo of a topic as it once used to be. Um, but ultimately we're really pushing for social change around the way that the whole of society understands and converses around consent. So we also run a lot of education programs now with parents and carers and with educators or teachers. So the stakeholders that are really important in, in the lives of young people. You've got this new campaign out at the moment that looks at adding a new classification to identify lack of consent in films and TV shows. Um, can mm-hmm. you tell us more about this? Yes. So this be the first ever classification to call out a lack of consent. And again, we felt this was particularly important um, given the progress that's been happening around consent. You know, we've seen legislation moving towards affirmative consent in quite a number of jurisdictions around Australia. We've got a new consent curriculum coming into place from 2023. So there's lots of progress happening around consent, but but like I said, I think there's still sort of that gap in understanding as to how to apply consent practically. And currently, I think a lot of Australians are um, really taking pointers from the relationships that they see on screen as to what relationships should look, sound and feel like. Um, I think, you know, we can't underestimate the the role that media has in shaping our understanding and expectations of relationships. And if you don't see consent modelled on your screens, then you're probably not going to expect for consent to be present in in your real life relationships. And and I think the the point of this classification is to inform and educate Australians or viewers on what exactly is a non-consensual act and what is a consensual act because currently from the research that we conducted ahead of this campaign three in five Australians are unable to correctly identify a non-consensual act when they see it on screen so you know there is the risk that they are potentially mirroring in their real life what what it is that they see on screen. Yeah, um, I do want to go into, um, I do want to uh, look into the research that you commissioned in a bit more detail, but um, just to comment on what you just said, um, it's 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 something that I think a lot of viewers would just absorb um, unconsciously, right? Like it's something that exactly. just ends up being normalised. It's not something mm. that you consciously think about when you're watching mm. these non-consensual acts happen on screen, but the more and more that you you absorb and take in it just becomes normalized behavior that you don't even um think about so Mm. yeah it's it's interesting to then suddenly have this focus on what non-consensual acts look like to make us really interrogate what that might look like in our real life relationships yeah I mean like as an example in most of the movies and TV shows that I watched as a sort of child and a teenager and even now as an adult, um, the surprise kiss, right? Like when Mm. do you ever see a character on screen ask the question, can I kiss you? And it doesn't, I mean, consent doesn't have to be worded indirectly that. It can definitely feel more fun, more sexy, sometimes even more awkward. Um, But like when have you ever seen a character sort of pause and 
check for consent or ask for consent before they landed kits like never right and I remember when I was you know as a teenager having my first kiss or my first sexual experiences like I was probably turned off if someone asked for my consent to kiss because I'd never seen that modeled in the relationships on on screen right like I thought that was weird um but now having educated myself on consent and its importance and what it actually is and its place in relationships um I understand why you need to ask someone for consent and how you can do it um you know naturally not so uncomfortably but if I hadn't had the opportunity for education, then I would have continued to go through my life thinking that um, what I saw on screen was was the right way to do a relationship. Just adding to that as well, um, on on your website, Classify Content, there are a number of scenes that, that portray non-consensual acts. And in a lot of these scenes, people who are receiving the kiss or receiving the act do protest and do mm. say no. Um, yeah. And yeah. and in many of these instances, they're ignored or the other person proceeds anyway. And so that lack of respect um, as well um, mm. and, and just forging on and continuing on with, with that moment is it really does, you know, do something to, to a lot of people because it just shows that even if you do protest and even if you do say no, the other person is allowed to um continue keep pressing you exactly yeah Yeah. I think that's I think I mean that's so common like the the narrative of you know one character saying visibly saying or verbally saying no and often visibly looking upset or not into it or distressed but then the other character sort of just as you say pressing on continuing to sort of chase in inverted commas um and eventually that no is converted to a yes but then it's that whole exchange is like romanticized and it turns into a really passionate kiss um, where both characters are, are ultimately happy. I think exactly the thing that young people are taking away from from those exchanges are it's fine to disregard someone's verbal no or disregard someone's boundaries. And if I keep asking enough times, if I keep applying enough pressure or guilt tripping or coercion or sweet talking, whatever it might be, then they'll eventually say yes to me and that's consent. Um, Whereas, you know, legally that's actually not consent, but you would never know that from from the films or TV shows that we watch. Just going back to the the research that Consent Labs commissioned, um, it revealed a lot about what people in this country know and do not know about consent. Can you talk us through uh, some of the results of this research? Um, and and what that reveals about where the gaps are in in consent education in this country. Yeah, I think uh, what we found from this research was that a quarter of Australians were unable to define consent, and I think there was a lot of confusion as to what exactly constituted consent. So quite a number of people were saying that... um, body language is consent or that, you know, sort of a smile or, or a nod is consent where, whereas actually um, in terms of the affirmative model of consent, which is what we, we champion at Consent Labs, um, consent has to be verbal. It has to be communicated if, if all parties or both parties are speaking, that is. Mm. Um, 
So I think there is still misunderstandings as to what exactly consent is and also when it needs to apply. I think there's still a lot of confusion around the fact that consent needs to be continuous. So as an example, just because you've consented to kissing doesn't mean that you've consented to any other sexual act. Um, And I think people tend to get confused as to how consent applies in in relationships like long-term relationships and and marriages um so I think there is still a way to go in terms of consent education um especially really robust consent education that is you know up to date with the legislation and and sort of the the ethical and moral expectations of society Mm. um and there's something that I do remember uh from an interview that I did with um Heather from Scarletine, um, they were saying that, you know, consent education really should begin with young children because a lot of the time we don't seek consent from young children before asking, mm-hmm. or before hugging them or, mm. um, and they learn that from a very young age and, and especially watching older Disney movies, there's not a lot of consent or there's not really any consent depicted in any of those movies and yet you consume it from a very young age and and learn very early on that um consent isn't something that's needed before before touching someone or yeah having any contact with them I agree I think the conversation around consent can definitely be started from a young age it obviously has to be age and stage appropriate so um really sort of instilling in young children the concept of especially you know sort of physical or touch boundaries but also letting them know that you know they have bodily autonomy and that they are allowed to say no to something if it makes them feel uncomfortable um because I definitely didn't have that confidence in in myself to say no when I was a child or even a teenager um so I think instilling those values from a young age um is a really positive thing um, shifting uh, focus now, I just wanted to look into the process of adding a new classification. Um, mm. I understand that Consent Labs are planning to have a federal petition soon. So can mm-hmm. you talk us through this process a bit more? Yes. So the way that we are looking to run it is firstly really um, garnering the support of the Australian public. So um, I think what's been really great about the sort of movement around consent is that it's really largely been sort of a grassroots or a bottom-up movement if you will it's it's very much been led by the Australian public you know the the changes to our consent curriculum very much came about because of people like Chanel Contos um, really loudly campaigning for changes to our education system so we really wanted to honor that um, with this potential movement here. So yeah, the first step for us will be um, seeing whether the Australian public does also see value in a new classification. I mean, um, we've launched, it's now been two days since we launched and we've received a lot of really, really um, positive and and a really, um, yeah, positive support from the public. So I think we just want to make sure that, that you know, there is value. Mm-hmm. Um, that will be in the form of a pledge which people can pledge via our website classifyconsent.com.au um, and once we've got enough you know momentum and enough traction that's when we'll um, 
officially go to to that formal petition um, to the Australian government to see if we can formalise this classification. If this new classification does come into effect, what mm. are you hoping that this will achieve? I know that this is a very big question, but <laughs> um, yeah, what what uh, positive changes are you hoping this will help create for our society? I think for us with this this campaign and with this classification, it's not at all about censoring or cancelling any of the TV shows that we that we watch or that we love. You know, you can. I think it's about recognizing the role of media as entertainment um, and acknowledging when maybe it should only be consumed for entertainment purposes and not as a source of education. Um, so for us, we're really hoping that this classification is, you know, one tool um, as a broader push towards really holistic consent education that we're, I think, now starting to see come about. So, you know, young Australians um, in the new consent curriculum will be learning a lot more about media literacy. Um, so that means, you know, when they consume all forms of media, not just TV shows and movies, but, you know, podcasts or even pornography, what tools um, should they have under their belt to critically analyse the messages that they're receiving? So um, they'll have those skills from the formal education system. Hopefully that in combination with this classification will really empower them to be able to identify the non-consensual acts that they see on their screen and sort of prompt them to question themselves, you know, do I want to replicate this in my real life or maybe I don't and I'll just leave it for entertainment purposes. So I think it's, yeah, we're hoping that this um, classification will really be one piece of sort of the broader education puzzle around comprehensive consent education. That was Angelique Wan from Consent Labs. And if you would like to know more about their campaign, you can go to www.com www.classifyconsent.com.au um, Just on that topic, such an interesting conversation and such an important conversation to be having about, you know, some of the content that we're exposed to in films and TV and how, you know, obviously there's a lot of uh, scenes that are displayed that are, are non-consensual and kind of pointing out how maybe we do need to let um, audiences know when things are not non-consensual yeah I think you know particularly from a very young age um, you know production houses like Disney really perpetuate this idea that um, it's normal and okay and even perhaps desirable mm. to have that type of experience yeah the desirable part is interesting isn't it it's mm. like they almost romanticize it and like you know I grew up in the 90s um, where pop culture was just saturated with that. Um, even the early 2000s, my favourite absolutely no-consent movie is Love Actually, which is, like, yes. <laughs> literally watched on, you know, Christmas and Valentine's Day and all these days that are kind of romanticised. And it's just not one story in there has any semblance of consent. Like, there's... A literal stalker there's um mm. this weird dynamic between a white man and um i can't remember where she was from is she peruvian 
and she can't speak English, and、mm-hmm. she works for him, and then he just falls in love with her based on absolutely nothing, <laughs> no conversation whatsoever. God. And then there's the whole, there's like a, the prime minister of the UK、mm-hmm. basically like forces himself into a relationship with his secretary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and、so. it's just seen as this challenge. Yeah, to become like, oh, I want this person even more because they have expressed that they don't want me. Yeah, so I will make sure that they do. Yeah, it's crazy as well because I think the messaging at the time that they would be going for is like, you don't have to date within your class, like, <laughs> which was like, whoa. Yeah, it's it's odd to think about. It's so weird, especially、um, back then they got、yeah. away with it, and it was the norm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, my mind goes to like shows like Gossip Girl. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but was it incredibly popular for young so women? Popular, and、oh, you、yeah. know, young women who are navigating dating and sex、yeah. and consent. I think it's a really damaging message to be,、mm-hmm. um, yeah, put into as normal. Yeah, and I think、um, more so, you know, that's what you should want. You should kind of. Want this power dynamic? Like that's what you should be aiming for. That's what you should. That's the desire, I guess, is like the power dynamic where you're the inferior,、um, which is what Gossip Girl kind of、uh, definitely like. You know, chase the guy. Or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it then sort of creates this narrative that you know, if you, if you don't have that and you don't have that sort of thrill and excitement, that chase, which is so messed up. Then what you have is really boring, yeah,、mm-hmm. really yeah. stagnant, yeah. and that、uh, you know that's that's you know not really what love is. You know, it should be this grand, you know, gestural romance, which is just so unhealthy,、mm-hmm. so toxic.、Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know you can't really. I personally can't have a conversation about this without mentioning Bollywood. Yeah,、um, I have an extreme love hate relationship with Bollywood. Obviously, I grew up with it. Um, but there is not an iota of consent going on in most kind of big blockbustery movies. Yeah,、um, and in fact,、um, especially in the nineties, stalking is really glorified,、um, like to a level where it's common that it happens in everyday life, and people are not batting really an eyelid because、um, it's so so normalized by the film industry. Um, to the point where in Australia, I think I can't remember how many years ago, but there was a case where、um, an Indian man stalked a woman and was、um, used a defence in court called the Bollywood defence, where he said he didn't know it was wrong,、oh、and it worked. Whoa!、Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, like through his exposure to Bollywood. Yeah, he- it's it's really it's really really full on how normalised it、yeah. can be. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's kind of like the uh, uh, what happens in the end is you know this exposure and to quite a literal sense with the case with this、mm. um, man in court. But you know, these this exposure kind of does validate that behaviour, and especially when it's in such mainstream. Culture and you're exposed to it all the time, and you watch it as when you're growing up. And I remember, yeah, being at school, and obviously、um, we had to. There was a whole riff that happened between the genders, and <laughs> that's so dramatic. But they had to get this person in to come talk to us <laughs> and sort it out. And yeah, it made this like PowerPoint of like、um, 
all this material that we'd been exposed to when we were like younger and you know uh they kind of said you know this is why there's such a gender imbalance and i remember being like 14 15 and being like what the mm. <laughs> so the the boys are just being mean to me mm-hmm. <laughs> um but it was true like you know that kind of uh very subtle um coercion or very uh subtle conditioning mm-hmm. that happens with that exposure to that kind of stuff but I think even, you know, thinking back to primary school and secondary school, like the sex education that we received was totally absent of any conversation surrounding consent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's super problematic and it's, it quite often is centred around male pleasure mm-hmm. um, and male forms of contraception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, without considering anyone else's experience. Yeah, and still the case. Mm-hmm. Like, it's still quite difficult um, to implement some sort of like base sex education that mm-hmm. um, surrounds women's and uh, gender non-conforming people's pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, we should play a track just before we get into our next conversation. Um, this song is called Moon Baby and it's by Liar Knight. Your chain is on my dress side Your hoodie in my room So you come around to collect them Another reason we found to go again Messing around a bit late on your chest My whereabouts candlelit lace Not the best on caramel Smooth, oh so smooth
just playing over the top there is Liar Night with Moon Baby. A National Child Protection Week ended yesterday, and this year's theme was Every Child in Every Community Needs a Fair Goal. The framework to reduce criminalization of young people in residential care, signed in 2020, is an important step to reduce the risk of criminalization of young people. Alicia Savis, Associate Director of Child Protection at Victoria Legal Aid, is advocating for the implementation of this framework as soon as possible. Um, she's on the show this morning to talk us through the framework and um, how it can help. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Thanks for having me. So can you give us a bit of uh, background on how this framework came about and the advocacy that went into creating it? Sure. So the framework uh, was created in 2020 after um, many years of advocacy from people in um, the child protection and youth justice sector. Um, so, for example, Victoria Legal Aid, where I, um, we were seeing in our legal practice young people um, in the child protection system, um, particularly those in residential care, ending up in the criminal justice system. Um, so we undertook some research, as did other people, um, including Melbourne University academics and uh, the Sentencing Advisory Council, and found that uh, that it was a real thing that young people um, in the child protection system, particularly those in out-of-home care, are more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. Uh, so that's something we wanted to see change. We want to um, make sure that uh, young people who have um, the unfortunate experience of ending up in the child protection system um, don't end up criminalised and uh, have every opportunity to um, be fully functioning, thriving members of the community. So you recently wrote an article for Law Institute Victoria explaining the framework and how it can help protect vulnerable children, um, where you refer to the pipeline effect that you just touched on, where children who are involved with child protection are far more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. Um, can you just tell our listeners a bit more about this pipeline? Sure. So our data at Legal Aid um, showed us that uh, 51% of young people in our research, 51% of young people in um, uh, residential care um, were ending up with criminal charges within 12 months of uh, that placement. Uh, so really it was showing to us that um, there is a, a really direct correlation between young people being put in out-of-home care, particularly residential care, and I can explain what that is a little bit more, um, uh, ending up with criminal charges. So that's the pipeline effect. Um, really, it was finding that uh, that people um, with contact with the child protection system, particularly out of home care, were more likely to have criminal charges. Um, we see that most significantly um, for um, so residential care placements. Um, that also the more serious the sentencing that a young person has, the more likely they are to have had um, time in out of home care as well. Yeah, in your article, there's some powerful quotes from young children who have experienced residential care. Um, one 11-year-old girl said that it was the worst time of her life. Um, can you, you know, elaborate a bit more on what residential care is and what, um, how, how they do end up there and what the experience has been like? Yeah, so uh, for a young person to end up in out-of-home care, it means that they've generally um, had a um, the child protection um the, the child protection has um, made an application to the children's court to say the child's in need of protection 
the court's made a finding that they are um, generally in need of protection and that they um, need to be removed from parental care. So for those children, they're very likely to have experienced trauma or abuse or um, sort of adverse childhood experiences. So residential care is one of um, several placement options when a, a child can no longer live um, with their family. So other placement options are foster care or a kinship placement where they live with family or friends. Residential care is, um, is usually considered the last resort. It is like uh, a group home where uh, young people um, with, um, in out-of-home care uh, live in um, a group home setting with professional carers looking after them. So they may be there for um, short-term placements or they may be there for, uh, for, for long-term, but it's really common for those young people to have had multiple placements and often multiple residential care placements as well. So it's really a last resort. Um, you know, the system really tries to house young people, um, if they can't stay with a family, placed in foster care or kinship sort of family-like arrangements. But the sad reality is there is an increasing number of young people in residential care as well. Yeah, and the, um, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of them do kind of move around to different ones, which would really add to, I think, a child's sense of, you know, not feeling safe or not feeling like they're being helped um, or held by society in any way. Yeah, that's right. Um, the Commission for Children and Young People a few years ago uh, undertook um, some research and they found that um, there is... Um, real issues around um, the inappropriate mix of young people in placement. So often young people who have, um, you know, they've got their own um, trauma backgrounds um, being um, placed together in units that are not necessarily the best mix for them. So that can lead to um, uh, safety issues for young people themselves, so them feeling unsafe, but it can also lead to, um, to behaviour, which may ultimately end up, uh, end, um, find them, uh, end up in the criminal justice system as well. Yeah, you just touched on trauma, which is um, a huge part of all of this. Um, what's the importance of trauma-informed approaches when addressing these situations for children in particular? Yeah, so um, that's uh, an issue that was picked up in the Sentencing Advisory Council and other reports is that, um, that actually the response to young people with um, with you know, challenging behaviour, so no no pretense that you know that there's um, that everything's good. There is really challenging behaviour for these young people in residential care at times. Um, but um, so the uh, Commission for Children and Young People found that, that there was an over reliance on calling police as a way of managing that behaviour. Um, so that's really um, not the ideal approach for dealing with young people. Um, uh, calling police for a young person who may have significant distrust of police and authorities um, can actually lead, lead to escalation of behaviour. So um, coming to the framework to reduce criminalisation, that is one of the key uh, principles in that, is to have a trauma-informed approach to dealing with young people. I imagine with the over-policing, um, it's even worse for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, who are kind of disproportionately represented in the system anyway. Um, and I imagine trauma-informed approaches would be all the more important for them, um, you know, and advocating for culturally appropriate support. Is this something the framework supports as well? Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. So for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people, they are um, 17 times more likely to have a protection order and they're 22 times more likely to end up in out-of-home care. So it's a really, really disturbing statistic. Um, when they do end up in care, they often don't um, have the right cultural support to assist them. So again, um, other research was done that found that there's a, a really um, a significant lack of cultural support plans for Aboriginal young people in care, which is a requirement um, by law. So for them, uh, the experience um, is that you know residential care um, may not be a, a positive experience. And of course, the distrust of police um, is really, really pronounced for Aboriginal young people as well. So um, having a trauma-informed approach and um, other, um, there's other features of the framework as well um, really aim to address that. Um, so some of the things um, that are uh, covered in the framework are about um, uh, sort of supporting the cultural connections for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people in residential care, so building their connection to culture and improving their um, feelings of cultural safety. So that's a really key principle to it. Um, another feature of the framework is um, the uh, need to in, um, increase the participation of young people themselves in decision-making about their lives and what's happening to them in placement as well. Yeah, I think that's... Uh that's a really important part of the framework to have to give to, to empower young people because I feel a lot of this process is incredibly disempowering, um, which is which is probably a huge factor in how they do end up in the justice system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the framework was launched in 2020, but COVID has delayed the actual implementation. Um, can you tell us a bit about how and when it will be implemented? Yeah, so that's right. So while well, the framework is um, an excellent agreement um, between the you know the key agencies who are working with young people in um, in the child protection and youth justice systems, um, so that's child protection, police, and Department of Justice, um, it hasn't been implemented yet. So uh, we're calling on um, uh, on the signatories to the agreement to implement the framework as soon as possible. So early work has commence but it's still not implemented yet so we're keen to see that happen as soon as possible. So when it's implemented um, that will provide guidance to people who are working with young people which is a really important thing. So um, for example uh, residential care workers giving them the tools and the training to support them to, uh, to make decisions um, about how to deal with young people with their challenging behaviour in residential care. Uh, it'll also provide guidance to police about uh, alternatives to criminal charges if they do need to be called out, but really um, making that a last resort as well. So we are um, we are keen to see the framework implemented as soon as possible. Unfortunately, uh, we're still seeing the same examples in our legal practice of young people being charged for offences that if they were living in a family situation, a police would not be called. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, this framework is going to make a big difference um, in the way that people even just view this situation overall, um, let alone, you know, put it put into practice um, the various kind of things that are in the framework. Um, was there anything you wanted to add from your experience as a lawyer or how this will impact um, lawyers moving forward? 
Yeah, so for lawyers working with young people, it's um, uh, we can really take up the framework. Um, even now before it's implemented, we can take up those principles about supporting young people's participation in decision-making and uh, talking to um, police about uh, charges and alternative charging them if they need. But really, I think the, the key part is for um, all of us and everyone who's working with young people to advocate for the framework to be implemented so that we've got the tools for people who you know doing really challenging work um, to be able to support young people to give them the care they need rather than a criminal justice response. Absolutely. Um, that's all we have time for this morning, Alicia, but thank you so much for joining us and talking us through this um, very important subject. Great. Thank you very much. So that was Alicia Savas, who is the Associate Director of Child Protection at Victoria Legal Aid, talking to us about the importance of implementing the framework to reduce criminalisation of young people in residential care. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR supporter. listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR, community radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. You are on 3CR, Tuesday breakfast. Uh, it's quarter past 8 AM this morning. And uh, before we launch into a bit of a conversation, obviously recent events, uh, if you've been living under a rock, the Queen has died. Um, so before we get into a bit of a discussion, you know, surrounding some of the media coverage around that, obviously the appointment of uh, King Charles, um, we want to play you a song uh, by a true queen, <laughs> Queen Latifah. Um, and this is from her 90s hit, uh, uh, UNITY. UNITY, that's a unity, UNIT. 
another flow. flow. Every time I hear a brother call a girl a bitch or a hoe, trying to make a sister feel low, you know all of that gots to go. Now everybody knows there's exceptions to this rule. I don't be getting mad when we playing this cool, but don't you be calling me out my name. I bring crap to those who disrespect me like a dame. That's why I'm talking. One day I was walking down a block, I had my cut off shorts on, right? Cause it was crazy. I I walk past these dudes when they pass me. Uh, One of them felt my booty, he was nasty. Yeah. I turned around red, somebody was catching the wrath. Then the little one said, <laughs> Yeah, me, bitch. And laughed. Uh, Since he was with his boys, he tried to break fly. Huh. I punched him dead in his eyes. Said, Who you calling me? You and I Just playing over the top there is Queen Latifah uh, with her amazing hit, uh, UNITY. So just before we get out of here and leave you with Accent of Women, uh, we did want to address, you know, some big news that came out um, of Britain (laughs) on, uh, yeah, Friday last week uh, where it was announced that the Queen uh, had died and, you know, um, there's obviously been a lot of conversation about, um, you know, the rolling coverage of that and how much of a media onslaught that's been um, and how, 
you know, I mean, we were struggling this morning to kind of think about, you know, what other news had been going on just purely because of this um, huge coverage of the funeral, the appointment of King Charles. And yeah, um, there's obviously been a lot of conversation around that coverage and a lot of conversation around, you know, the monarchy more generally um, and um, yeah, what did everyone else think? Well, I think it's interesting to see. So Adam Bant, leader of the Greens, um, came out and expressed his condolences, but also um, suggested that this is perhaps a really good opportunity to now consider what this means for Australia more broadly. Um, so implementing a much-needed treaty uh, with First Nations people, um, but also the transition into a republic and what that might look like now um, versus... Uh, during the last referendum, um, which which did ask Australia if if we wanted to move into a republic, which um, was a majority no vote. Yeah, as a migrant to Australia, um, I found it very interesting to see the um, amount of kind of involvement that Australians maintain with um, the monarchy in England. Um, and I've just found you know, from the mainstream media coverage, there's um, a lack of, uh, I guess, nuanced conversation. And Mm. um, it's just been interesting to see kind of who is being given the platform to speak in mainstream media. Um, And the overwhelming, uh, what, what feels like, I mean, it that, the thing with mainstream media is that you're often just getting um, one point of view. Um, and so I guess it, it does feel a bit like there's a lot of overwhelming support mm-hmm. for the for the monarchy in general and for, um, yeah, the, the new king. Yeah, definitely. Um, it'd be interesting because I know that Albanese in the past has been very pro-Republican, Republic, not that he's saying much on the subject right now, <laughs> um, but even I remember Kevin Rudd was is, is very vocal about Republic, um, but I think a lot of those conversations are, are not being had. And on the conversation of treaty, there was um, an article in The Guardian um, uh, that was published on Monday, so yesterday, where Green Senator Lydia Thorpe Uh, who, if we do remember, was forced to retake her oath of allegiance after calling the Queen a coloniser, has called on the government to show ambition. This is a quote for an Indigenous treaty and a a republic in the wake of Elizabeth II's death. Um, The Senator for Victoria said that after the Queen's death, people expected her to come out ranting and raving to confirm their views of me. Um, This is what she said as me as a crazy black woman, but she had taken time to reflect. Thorpe said on Monday she had seen anger and disbelief from First Nations people at the glorification of our oppressor, and she criticised the country's political leaders for showing zero regard for Indigenous people who had been calling for a day of mourning for over 80 years. Uh, She went on to say, this country has a new king, the parliament and the prime minister are subjugated to someone who didn't elect we didn't elect sorry we don't need a new king we need a head of state chosen by the people 
Um, that's what she said on Twitter. And she went on to say the process towards being able to pick our own head of state would bring us all together. It would force us all to tell the truth about our history and move us towards real action to right the wrongs that started with colonization. Um, and just on that note as well, I know that, and to be fair, it's the only parliament in Australia that has to do this, but the Victorian uh, parliament has to, they all have to come back and um, uh, swear their oath again to King Charles. Um, so they just did that, obviously, to the Queen, um, but they have to come back again to swear it to King Charles. And so that's actually only Victoria that does that. No other state does that. Um, yeah, in- interesting. I didn't know that, Jen. Yeah, I just learned that this morning. Mm. Yeah. Um, speaking of Lydia Thorpe, who, um, you know, as you just mentioned, was recently kind of in the media for calling the Queen a colonizer. Um, another thing Lydia did say was that, you know, she's just um, speaking speaking facts. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing that she's saying is um, new. Like, it, it's just that people don't, want to acknowledge two sides of things or like the many sides to things um and i and i really am grateful for her kind Mm. of commentary at this time and in general yeah because there is a very particular narrative um being presented about the queen and the monarchy um and, and it is i think disappointing that um a lot of media outlets particularly in australia are only privileging that particular view Um, and I think it is always important for balanced media to share the views of all people but particularly minorities Um, but also interesting going back to what you said Jen about Anthony Albanese who has previously expressed support for a republic he actually said um, speaking on talk radio on Friday declined to address the Republic question, mm-hmm. saying today's a day for one issue and one issue only, which is to pay tribute to the Queen Elizabeth to Queen Elizabeth II and give our thanks for her service to our country. Um, but also um, former Prime Minister and Republican Malcolm Turnbull, he once famously said that many Australians were Elizabethans rather than monarchists. And so, what? so <laughs> he, he sort of expressed that many people just support her as an individual but I think that's quite naive to view someone who represents so much um uh yeah mm-hmm. and to just sort of see her as an individual yeah it is interesting how and I mean you saw it with Brad as well you can be so vocal about something and then when you get the top job um mm-hmm. everything just slips away mm-hmm. <laughs> you gotta tell a lie gotta appeal appease yeah anyway um yeah that's a really good point um and it'll be interesting i think in the coming weeks there'll be another like more serious conversation obviously after this whatever they're calling it morning whatever parliament's not even on um also interesting i didn't know that is something that would happen the break from sitting i know yeah yeah yeah, I think that. Caught I've been I've been quite sense. continually like shocked. Yeah, yeah, and there's been a lot of conversation about, um, you know, Parliament specifically getting a break. No one else getting a break, or um, obviously for the reason why they're getting a break seems very convoluted. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. 
watch this space. Um, but there, there is a lot of great conversation happening on social media. There is, yeah. and you know, being from a country colonized by the British as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, lots of really interesting conversations coming out of India and Pakistan and various African countries and um, various other Asian countries, and um, that's been really, really nice. There's been a solidarity there that yeah. I've seen on social media, at yeah. least, which is great. Definitely, definitely. Um, all right. Well, we got to wrap wrap this show up. We got Accent of Women coming up next. Um, if you, as always, would like to listen back to uh, the show today, if you missed any of the uh, interviews, conversations we had at the start of the bracket, uh, you can go to the Tuesday Breakfast website where we will podcast the show. Um, and also you can have a look at all of our previous episodes there as well. Um, stay, stay tuned to 3CR, um, and we will, uh, see, I was about to say, see you again. We will, you'll be hearing from us <laughs> next week on Tuesday morning. I would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au.